Hayakala, hello, my friends, both new and known. I see word of my stories has spread. Festival is busy, to be sure, and I'm very grateful for the time you're taking out of your celebrations to bend your ear to me. For those who are new, welcome and well met. I am Orion Rawl, the storyteller. For those who already know me, welcome back. Now, as it happens, I was just in the middle of a story. The story of a remarkable woman named Agala Tael. The details of the first part of her tale have been imparted to some of you, and I'll thank you newly minted friends to tease that bit from those who've already heard, so as not to waste too much time. I'll recount by saying only this. Agala had received half a hundred stripes with a cane, a public beating for those of you unfamiliar with that unsavory practice, and was imprisoned by the Kateran soldiers at the garrison of a town called Hepet Dara. Late in a winter night, a bitterly cold, windy night, Agala and her cellmate Kite saw an opportunity for escape and took it. The garrison had mostly been emptied as the soldiers rode out to face a threat from their enemies, and Agala and Kite freed the half-dozen other young women imprisoned there. Those young women had all been sentenced to die, and for no other crime than that of having been born in the first place. Now, to the newcomers, this might not make sense, and truly, it really shouldn't make sense to any reasonable person. The Katerans were a people who had definitive beliefs about the importance of racial purity, specifically human purity. They believed that only humans should have human blood, that half-Spriton and half-Elven people had no right to exist, that they were dangerous abominations, that they were filth. Now, I see your confusion. You've never seen a half-Spriton person, and the only half-Elven people you've ever heard of are our own little princess and infant prince here in Cathia. I could take an age, probably, to attempt to explain why this is, the differences and similarities between human and elven and spritten physiology, the fact that elves and sprites are immortal and humans most significantly are not. I won't take that time here. Suffice to say that the Katerans were the first unified society that we have storied record that held this belief, and they were the first that we know of that actively attempted genocide against half-human persons. They were not the last. And should you hang around old Orion Rawl long enough, you'll like as not hear more on such things. But for now, the rest of Agala Tael's story. Agala and Kite and a half-dozen, half-Spriton and half-Elven young women had fled the garrison into a bitter winter night, with nothing more than a few wool blankets and less than a handful of stale ends of bread they managed to slip out of the garrison through a sally port behind a blacksmith's stall. Freedom they had gained, but survival had meant fighting the elements as much as it did fleeing the Katerans. They'd gone out of the kettle, but after a fortnight of flight, they found themselves thick in the fire. Out of the kettle and into the fire. Mayara, and another girl, Heria, dragged Agala into the darkness and out of the bitter, driving wind. They brought her far enough from the entrance of the ancient shrine to be out of the bluster 
and away from the swirl of crystalline snow that hissed across the smooth stone floor in icy swirls. With panting effort, they lowered her to the floor against the wall, and Mayara crouched next to her for a moment to adjust the woolen blanket around her. Agala gurgled a wordless thanks, which the younger girl hushed away. She was trying hard not to look at the hand's length of gory arrow that was protruding at a sharp leftward angle from the hollow of Agala's ribs. Put Timaris with Agala, Kite's voice wheezed from somewhere in the darkness. Try to keep them warm. Amaris, her dress ragged and blood-stained everywhere, was carried over by Lyke and Silveth. Both of them were bleeding from wounds on their arms and legs as well. Not, not on the floor, Agala managed slowly and wetly. Give her to me. Agala, Lyke began, but she bit her lip against whatever she had been about to say as Agala stretched out her arms to the badly wounded younger girl. They'll be warmer this way, Mayara murmured grimly. With effort, they tucked Amaris into Agala's arms, careful not to jostle the arrow that still skewered the older of the young women. Kite had warned against removing it until they could get a fire going, and with the howling wind just outside, it was looking like a fire would not be soon coming. So Mayara tucked Amaris under Agala's blanket and covered both of them with Amaris's while Lyke tended to the crude bandage around the left side of the girl's throat. I'll keep pressure on it, Agala managed, briefly covering Lyke's blood-stained hand with her own sticky fingers. Lyke nodded and said nothing, though she couldn't keep the slight tremble from her bloodless lips. Out of the kettle and into the fire. Things had gone from worse to catastrophic, after fleeing the garrison and the murderous Kateran soldiers. They'd fled north, deeper into the vale along the river and toward their home at Janula. It had taken almost a full hand of days to reach it, hounded as they were by horse-borne Kateran warriors searching for them. The village had been burned, but they'd found some food and usable items and had weathered a blizzard in the ruins of the village temple. But the blizzard had been the last respite they'd had, in the nine days since the Katerans had chased them, driven them ever northward and to ever higher elevations with an unknown number of men and dogs. Their pursuers had never been more than a half day behind. In that time, they'd had no more than a candle piece or three of sleep whenever they managed to get far enough ahead or high enough up a rocky crag or ridgeline. Out of the kettle... Through it all, the bitter, unforgiving cold had been a plague to them. They'd had no fire since the pair of blizzard nights they'd hidden ensconced in the temple ruins. What sleep and warmth they had in the days since had come from huddling together beneath their woolen blankets like a pile of field mice. And into the fire. And then that morning, the dogs had finally caught up with them as they struggled across a broad, scrubby slope scattered with broken boulders and knotty, bristly, bare-branched crab trees and squat, dark evergreens. They'd come at them all at once, seemingly from everywhere, snarling, biting, 
They dragged Amaris to the ground and savaged her terribly before Kite and Agala could reach her. Kite killed two of the beasts with the sword she'd taken from the Kateran guard, and Agala, though it had pained her heart, had smashed the iron prizing bar she claimed from the blacksmith's coat down on the one that had Amaris by the neck until it finally released her and stumbled away. Mayara, it turned out, was immune from their attention. She'd waded right into the snarling mass of dogs with quiet pleas and gentle touches. It confused the beasts. They refused to bite her, reacting as though she were just another of them, though one with more authority. They'd snapped and snarled and bitten Heria and Lyke and Sylveth, but that was just because Mayara couldn't calm them all fast enough. It was as she was doing that, calming the dogs and shooing them away from Amaris and the others that Agala had seen the Kateran soldier go to one knee on the other side of a pine, a bow half-drawn in his hands. Mayara, dog-calming, half-elven Mayara, never saw him. Agala flung herself at the girl, leaping with all the spring her strong legs could muster. Her intention had been... She didn't know what her intention had been. To foul the archer's aim? To knock Myara aside? It was the sound the arrow had made as it tore through her that was stuck in her mind, even more than the feeling of the blow or the pain of it. It was a wet, tearing thud, a sound unlike any she'd ever heard anywhere. And then she'd been on her side on the ground, dogs trampling nervously all around, a straight line of molten ice through her lung and stomach, blood and bile filling her throat and choking her. The rest became very hazy for Agala. She couldn't remember what happened to the dogs, or to the Kateran archer. There had been a lot of screaming and shouting, barking. Then she'd been pulled to her feet, slung haphazardly between Mayara and Heria, half carried, half dragged as they'd fled higher up the slope. The notion of consciousness had become very narrow for her. Kite's words about how to manage pain became a sort of burning light she tried to force all of her mind to focus on. But this... She'd rather go back and get the other half-hundred stripes. Nothing had ever prepared her for pain like this. Imaris shifted just slightly beneath her hands, and Agala forced herself to focus on her face. She seemed so small and delicate. She favored the spritten side of her heritage, with overly large, expressive eyes and a pale lavender hue. Her hair had come from her human mother. It was as thick and long as Agala's, just a shade darker, auburn, rather than chestnut. She was reaching for Agala's hand, and she took it, curling the younger girl's fingers tightly within her own. They were both completely silent, both just trying to breathe, Agala through her pierced lung and Amaris through her badly torn throat. Agala! Kite's wheezy voice suddenly spoke from right next to them. She sounded relieved somehow. Agala, we have to move you one more time. Come on. Agala twisted just slightly to the left and let Kite lift Amaris out of her arms. The old woman, battered by cold as much as they, wheezing and hissing for breath, was so strong. She'd probably slept the least of all of them, and yet she rose effortlessly and gently with Amaris cradled in her arms. Hagala tipped her head up to look at her, noted the deep concern in Kite's eyes, concern for her, and she set her mouth and tried to rise on her own. 
She got her knees under her, then one foot, and then her world closed to a narrow point of light and she vomited blood, black and crimson across the stones beneath her feet. Mayara was at her side in an instant, scooping under her arm and supporting her weight. Agala gurgled in a half-breath and swooned, but Haria caught her by the other side and righted her, and they wordlessly followed Kite deeper into the shrine. The way sloped downward, or at least that was how it seemed to Agala. She didn't know how long they walked. It seemed far, but the only words spoken came from Mayara, who whispered, Don't kick your feet, Agala. It's not helping. Just let them drag. She did that, let her weight settle on their shoulders, and the jarring did become less. For a moment, Agala imagined that it was getting warmer, before realizing that it was actually getting warmer. The walls, cold and clean, were damp now with condensation. The air, which had been so cold and thin and dry, became increasingly warm and humid, with a heavy mineral smell. They rounded a bend, the way went more sharply downward still, and Agala could see faint light up ahead. It got still warmer, until they came into a huge circular chamber softly and dimly lit by luminescent stones set in the walls and ceilings. There was water here, a steaming circular basin edged with more of those luminescent stones that extended in an arc from the wall and dominated much of the vast room. In the center of it, toward the back, was a figure, a life-sized statue of vaguely feminine lines worked all in amethyst. It's a hot spring, Mayara whispered in her ear. Sweet red, I forgot what it felt like to be warm. What is this place? Haria breathed on the other side. The Night Lady's Temple, Agala managed, I suppose. Toltesserim? Mayara gasped in alarm. Don't be superstitious, Agala cautioned gently. Your father's people built these shrines long ago. They were for religious pilgrimages, like he added softly as Mayara and Haria lowered Agala gently to the ground. Let's try to get her out of that blanket. They worked quickly and carefully, unpinning the blanket from around Agala's neck and cautiously holding it up and back from her as they guided it away from her body and along the arrow shaft transfixing her. Gentle as they were, when they reached the fletching, they couldn't get the blanket free without jostling the arrow. Boiling pain exploded in Agala's chest, and a long, breathless few moments had her retching another splash of crimson against the wall. I'm sorry, Lanky cried. I'm so sorry. Agala shook her head weakly and held out a hand. Don't, don't be, she managed. Not your fault. She drew a couple of weak, wet breaths. Amara's? Kite is cleaning her up best she can, Mayara said, rolling Agala's blanket to make a sort of cushion for her. Tell her. She choked on more blood and couldn't make any further words appear. With a waving gesture, she managed, Amara's, before falling silent again and leaning her head against the wall. I'll tell her like he promised, her soulful eyes welling and worried. She disappeared from Agala's sight, and Mayara settled to her knees next to her. 
She wiped blood and grime from Agala's mouth and chin with a surprisingly clean cloth she drew from her sleeve, then leaned in and kissed her cheek gently. Agala looked wanly at her, and Mayara smiled in spite of tears glittering in her own eyes. You saved my life today, the half-elven girl said, at the cost of your own. She didn't say that part aloud, though they both heard it. I'll bet you wish you never came home from university. University? Kite's quiet question interrupted them. Mayara shifted and helped her slide Amaris into Agala's arms again. The girl immediately took her hand and squeezed, and Agala did her best to smile, though she had no idea whether or not her lips were obeying. In spite of the heat from the spring, Mayara dragged Amaris's blanket over the two of them, being very careful not to touch or bump the arrow. Hagala came home from Zara University for the Yule festivities, Mayara answered when the badly wounded pair were settled. What did you study? The old woman asked, squatting and regarding the arrow with shrewd and weary eyes. Dance, murmured Agala, and dance history. She has a mastery degree in both, Mayara said, pride swelling in her voice. We had a huge party for her when she got home. Another reason you're so tough, Kite said with no trace of disdain. Every dancer I've ever met had the stamina of a horse. She took a wheezy breath of her own and let it out slowly. We need to get that arrow out of you, she said bluntly, but we need to build a good, hot fire first. I know what you intend to do, Agala said slowly. I'll bear it if I can. She forced herself to meet the older woman's eyes. Kite looked so tired. Her eyes were darkly circled and sunken with weariness, but there was such resolve there that Agala couldn't help but feel an enormous sense of admiration. No dying, the old woman told her after a moment. I'm going back out with the other girls to gather wood. You'll be safe and warm here for now. But I promised that we'd speak the names of your dead like Thondrans, and we cannot do that if you die so... No dying. It was blunt, but it was a good attempt at levity. Agala looked down, her vision growing very dim, and saw Amaris's wide, frightened eyes. Dim was becoming black, but she squeezed those small, delicate fingers reassuringly and murmured, No dying. Find me. In silence and muted light, at the edge of sleep, the border of night. Come to me, softly crooned with all haste, child of twilight, daughter of grace. Agala came to slowly, her mind a syrup of pain. She was surrounded by silence crushing, dark silence. The pain in her chest was a roaring torrent, a white-hot bar of agony that didn't thrum or throb, but just existed in constancy. How she had managed to wake through it, she could not say. For a long moment, she listened, breathed as much and as little as she could, 
and tried to sense how much time had passed. It was impossible. She opened her eyes. The light of the luminescent stones was dim, but not so dim that she couldn't see. Amaris was yet in her arms, was yet holding her hand, but the fingers were cold, the grip lax. No movement stirred her breast when Agala gave her a gentle shake. Her delicate face was slack and wan and still, her lavender eyes cloudy and unfocused. For a long time, Agala didn't move, save for the tears that slid silently down her face. Janula was not a big village for all of its diversity. She'd known Amaris since she'd been little. Her father was a boyer and Fletcher, but he also made toys at his shop. Agala remembered him, wondered what had happened to him. He'd been a friend of her own father, a lilac-haired Spritten man, always cheerful, always smiling, always quick to sing at a party. He'd sung at the one they'd held for Agala. And Agala had danced, demonstrated her knowledge, taught steps to the other women, younger and older. To Amaris. The sudden, searing rage that coiled up from her heart with a snap like a broken spring surprised even her. She threw her head back and shrieked weakly, wordlessly at the faraway ceiling of the chamber. She wanted nothing more than to be able to do as Kite did and fight, to lash her grief and rage into a storm of violence, a vengeance that would sweep the Katarans from the world. But then her head tipped forward and she slumped even more against the wall. Her rage hadn't dimmed, but the brutal realization of her own certainly mortal wound settled over her like an icy, frozen blanket. The Katarans had murdered her whole family, and they'd already made a corpse of her too. It was just taking her longer to die. But I'm not dead. Not yet. Agala gently closed Amaris's eyes and released her hand. She shifted Amaris's body off her legs, folded her hands on her breast and dragged the blanket over her. With every ounce of strength she could muster, Agala climbed to her feet. Clawing at the wall, she swayed, spat a mouthful of blood and steadied herself. I am not dead yet. She repeated aloud, Not yet. Upright, Agala had no clear idea of what she was going to do. She intended to go find Kite, wait for the Katerans, kill as many of them as she could manage. She took a step. For a moment, her rage was hotter than the pain, and she gritted her teeth and took another step, and then another, and another. Her unsteady steps were too jarring. Her vision grayed at the edges and she stopped. Clutching her right arm tight around herself, she paused and blinked. This was the wrong way. She was walking toward the wide arc of the hot spring pool. For a long, long moment, she stood in the absolute silence around her, listening to her own shallow, wet breaths as she contemplated the still, steaming water and the amethyst statue against the opposite wall. Resolutely, resignedly, she took another step in the same direction, stopping now at the water's edge. There will be no fight for me, 
Agala said into the silence. Her voice sounded strange. It didn't reverberate or echo in the chamber. It was just there as she spoke, and then not there, as though maybe she hadn't uttered a word after all. There'll be no fight for me, she thought again, rage finally fading into a weary sadness. But maybe I can help another way. The elves, people like Myara's father, had built these shrines. They were places for meditation, places of peace and pilgrimage. She'd never thought much about them. The temple had always been enough for her. But the eternal elves felt that there was great power in these places. And perhaps there was. Perhaps here she could ask for help for Kite and the others, and perhaps, just perhaps, in this place, she would be heard. Agala stepped into the water. It was so hot, but it was such a good heat. The water filled her doe-skin boots and soaked the hem of her skirt. She fumbled at the laces of that. There was no way she had enough strength left to drag the weight of that much wet wool to the far side of the pool. It fell to her ankles and she stepped carefully out of it, dressed now in just shift and shirt and her thick linen leggings and boots. With careful, slow steps she waded deeper. Two steps the water was to her thigh and in three it was to her waist. Agala feared the next step, not knowing what would happen if she submerged the arrow through her body and she stopped as a wave of panic clawed across her mind. Sitting against the wall and falling asleep and drowning slowly on her own blood was one thing. She'd resigned herself to that fate. Drowning in the water of the hot spring pool would be immeasurably worse. Another cautious step and the water got no deeper. Agala closed her eyes briefly in relief. It seemed easier to breathe, too, with her face just above the steam of the pool, and easier to move. Before she knew it, she was curling her hand around the slender, steam-warmed ankle of the amethyst statue and resting her cheek awkwardly against its foot. Her vision had faded to darkness at the edges, and with numb detachment she knew there would be no waking once that swallowed her. She tried not to think about it, tried instead to focus on the warmth surrounding her in the silence and her grip on the smooth stone. Please, Agala whispered, whoever you are, help me, please. Silence swallowed her words. Agala did not know what to expect, if anything, but she had nothing left to do until death finally claimed her, so she tried again. Please, she hissed, I, I am dying. I would give my life to see my friends spared to see Kite spared. It was too much talking. She nearly blacked out as the words crumbled into racking, bloody coughs. Agala clung to the ankle of the statue with all the strength she had left, and she refused to succumb. I do not know your name, but I beg of you. I am the light deep under trees, the light beneath storms. That moment when waking becomes sleep, and sleep becomes dream. I am all the shadows of the veil, and I am the mother of mist and dew. 
I am the last light of the dying day, and the first promise of light at the dawning of the new. I am dusk, a Galatayo, and I will help. The voice came from everywhere at once, and yet wasn't loud. It was so soothing, so familiar that a Gala didn't even start when large, long-fingered hands settled onto her shoulders and guided her away from the statue and to the center of the pool. Huge feathered wings with pinions that looked as though they were made of star-filled summer skies closed around her. In that safe, close, chrysalis-like darkness, no, no, not darkness, dusk, she felt the arrow pulled the rest of the way through her body, but she couldn't see it happen, and there was no pain at all. I've died then. But even as she had the thought, she knew it wasn't so. Amaris? I pour Amaris day song from this place myself. In your arms, Agala, she was safe and warm and had no fear for herself. Her fear was for you. Her prayers were for you, as you speak one now for her. I have answered what she asked. Her ask was that your life be spared. Now for you, you seek to go to the aid of others? Yes, Agala agreed immediately. Yes, I do. She wanted to protect Myara and Lyke and Heria and Silveth and Yelea. She wanted to fight as Kite did fight for those like herself who'd been helpless. She wanted to fight for Amiana and the murdered children, for her mother and Myara's and Lyke's and Amaris's, who the Katarans had hanged on that terrible morning she couldn't forget. More than anything, she wanted to be the instrument of their destruction. Be careful, Ogalatayel. Hatred is dangerous. Rage is dangerous. Fear is dangerous. These emotions will make you clumsy and rash and reckless. You must learn to distill these emotions into determination. Your hatred must fuel a determination to seek justice. Your rage must fuel your determination to stand for those who cannot stand for themselves. And your fear must be the conscience of your courage, must be the wisdom to seek survival over retribution and justice over vengeance. The wounds left by the absence of those who have gone beyond your reach cannot be soothed by the destruction of your enemies. Agala considered the words. The knowledge that another daughter might not have to see, to see the things I have, that knowledge drives me. The urge to protect those who are defenseless compels me now to fight. I want to stand for the memory of those who were murdered by taking up arms against their attackers. I do want justice for them, for all of them, for all of them that I knew and all that I did not. Then we must strike in accord, you and I. If this is your will, I will grant what you ask, the tools to fight against the darkness that forever presses against the light. But know this, Agalatayo, this must be your choice. 
I cannot compel or require your service. Know, too, that we are dusk, and so we are always at that very edge of the darkness, that place where the battle is most often joined. One foot on this path, and you can never retrace that step. You will be my champion, and that service is often rewarded with little but hardship and pain. And so again, I say that this must be your own will that you join to mine, because I will give you what you ask, and you will be mine in return. I promised my life, and I meant it. There was no hesitation. She knew that this was what she wanted, was what she had asked for. It is my will. I want to fight. For justice. For those I love. For those who cannot fight for themselves. I will be your champion if you will have me. So shall it be, Agalatia. Prepare yourself, for my divine embrace is not gentle. I am dusk, and you shall be my champion. Your life I restore to you though that is no condition of our compact, but rather the answered prayer of another. You offered your life and will freely to me, and in return I will grant you the instruments you need to fulfill our contract. They are Malrias, who is the essence of shadow, and Lalios, who is as a soul laid bare. And you shall be as they are, the silence of shadows and the opener of all ways. Live now, daughter of dusk. Live and go forth into the world as my sword and my will upon it. In my name and your own, live and fight for those who cannot defend themselves. The angel's wings closed tightly around Agala, and the hands pulled her back against something warm and solid. For the barest breath of a moment, it was a simple embrace, full of love and warmth and reassurance. And then Agala lived. Her mind exploded with images, sounds, people, places. In the next few moments, or was it days, years, she could not say time abruptly lost all sense and meaning as she lived scores of entire lifetimes fought battles by the hundreds, died a thousand deaths. A pair of swords appeared before her, one dark as midnight and one pale and slightly luminous, and she took them and wielded them across landscapes, hellscapes, fraught with battle and slaughter. Through it all she led the legions of dusk, and they made war at the right hand of the very angel of mourning. But then there were scenes from her own life, recent scenes, spooling backwards as though written on a scroll being slowly rolled up. The attack from the dogs and the arrow flashing across the short distance as she leapt to save Myara. That sound again as it punched through her and she crumpled to the ground. Days earlier, running, kite ripping something from under her hair. It was a small glass vial containing a single dandelion seed. Agala and the others had watched curiously as the old woman took it from the tiny vessel and released it on the wind. Hope, 
she'd told them when they asked what it was. Help, mayhap. But they'd been fleeing, and Agala had never given it a second thought. And then back again, to Amiana and the children, herself being beaten, her mother and the other mothers hanged. Further, to take Uldjan feigning a grievous injury and murdering her father, Yaran Kalindra, Janula's only other mage, nailed to her own front door with a pair of Katarin arrows. But they hadn't killed her. In Agala's visions, she screamed silently as she tore herself off the arrows, red lightning snaking across the ground, vine-like, as she stumbled away, leaving her attackers nothing more than charred pillars of flesh and ash. Abruptly, it was done. Over. A shadow stood in the silence. A shadow dressed now in fighting leathers of mottled gray and black. The others, those it had offered itself up to protect, were in danger. They had been found again. The Katerans had come. The shadow breathed, remembered it was a woman, and then slipped from the chamber of the hot spring a night-dark sword in its right hand and the determination of ages in its changeling violet eyes. Now the running was over. Now the fight began. Kite hardly reacted when the Katarin soldier hurled Sylveth into the stone wall so hard that the girl crumpled motionless to the floor. She had always been good at maintaining battle focus, that art of meditation where one could fight and assess at the same time, compartmentalizing the mind so that the emotions could not intrude or distract. Mayara leapt to protect her, the iron poker Agala had taken from the smith at the garrison her only weapon. Kite had two other Katerans to deal with, three as another sidled past the bonfire they'd built in the doorway to keep the dogs at bay, but she planned her next series of movements to close the space between herself and Mayara. It was going to be difficult, as she had no sword now. That had been hurled away to maim the archer who'd killed Agala. The young woman was certainly dead by now. That intrusive thought brought an unexpected pang with it, and Kite couldn't hide from it. Without a mage healer to hand, or at the least a very capable and well-equipped field surgeon, there was no hope of survival for Agala. That wound had promised the girl nothing but a cruel, lingering death, and yet she'd spent what little strength she had left trying to help Amaris. There was nobility in that, and honor, and strength of character that belied Agala's quiet nature. The grief skittering at the edge of that bubble of concentration she'd used to surround herself surprised her. Kite hadn't admitted to herself how attached she'd become. But she'd vowed to fight to her last breath to save them, had said the words to that midwife, to herself, to whatever higher power had deigned to listen to her. And so Kite fought, wielding only a hunting knife that Amaris had found in the rubble of Janula, the old woman plied all of her considerable martial skill, employing hands, feet, and blade to lethal effectiveness. Another Katarin slipped by the fire, though, and now Myara was facing two of the murderous bastards, and this fight was becoming hopeless, and she wasn't going to be able to save these girls against so many soldiers. But she wasn't going to stop fighting, either. Kite was inside one soldier's guard, and then she drove the knife into his armpit, forcing a grunt of shock from him before she twisted it 
and flipped him into the path of his partner. She couldn't finish him off, though, because she had to twist out of the way of the third soldier. Kite spun further still when she saw a shadow detach itself from the wall deeper in the chamber. She moved to position the soldier between herself and this new threat when she saw the shadow become a solid figure of feminine lines dressed in dark fighting leathers. There was a black sword in the shadow's right hand and another in a scabbard on its back. In three gliding, graceful strides, the shadow woman slipped between Mayara and the Kataran who had just lunged for her. She turned into the Kataran's reach, caught Mayara's poker in her left hand and the Kataran's sword on the crossguard of her own, and spun, hurtling the half-elven girl to the floor and out of harm's way. The movement continued. The Kataran's sword was twisted out of his hand as the woman turned full round, the iron pry bar striking a spark from the stone floor as she used it to sweep his legs from under him. He landed hard, stunned, and still the shadow woman was moving, spinning on the balls of her feet. The length of iron whistled up laid across the other Kataran's head with a metallic thud. He collapsed like a string-cut puppet bleeding from the eyes. The figure swiveled her hips and spun abruptly in the other direction, hurtling the blacksmith's poker across the room to swat down the soldier to Kite's right, even as the night-dark sword silently stilled the first Kataran she dropped. Kite wasted no time, darting in with hands and knife to put down the last Kataran facing her. She took the sword from his hand even as she was yanking the hunting knife from beneath his chin, and looked up in time to see the other woman engage two more soldiers as they skirted the bonfire. One leapt boldly at her, but she merely slipped around him cutting his hamstrings on her way to his partner. He fell to his knees, screaming, an abbreviated sound that ended with that black-bladed sword passing through his neck as the shadow woman advanced. The sight of her seemed to unnerve the other Kataran. He stumbled back as the woman came on, made a reckless attempt at a blow, and paid for it with his life when she turned it aside and slashed upward, opening him from hip to shoulder. He collapsed backward, his body falling into the fire and scattering flaming branches and coals across the floor. Still soldiers came on. Three became four, became a half dozen, and this figure, this ghost, glided among them, blades shifting through forms like water flowing over creek stones. One soldier met only a soft deflection where he expected to engage the smaller figure with all of his strength. He overreached stumbled stupidly into the path of another, dying on his own companion's blade as that man tried unsuccessfully to lunge at the shadow woman's back. She turned away from them, the second sword in her hand now, silvery bright in the darkness and glowing with a faint light. It was preternaturally sharp. One soldier's hand came away from his wrist, a mistake of his guard being too low, and the next lost his leg above the knee. Kite watched as the figure passed among the Katarans like a bladed cyclone. She had been a soldier all of her life and had never witnessed such a display of martial prowess. It was like watching the stories she'd been told of elven or spritten blade thanes, warriors who had literal centuries to practice their art. Because it was art, deadly and beautiful, a dance of blades, her breath caught, and a spark of something took flame in her heart. Dance, she thought. Could it be? The Katarans were scattered around now, dead or maimed, 
and the figure was cautiously returning to them, keeping a wary eye on the archway as she approached. But Kite didn't wait. She met her as she came, saw those changeling eyes above the cowl, violet flecked with gold like the stars at dusk. Sweet rat, she croaked. Agala! Mayara looked up sharply from where she was helping Silvith to her feet. Both froze, staring slack-jawed at the figure. The other girls came silently out of the darkness where they'd been hiding, the stones they'd armed themselves with still in their hands. Kite hugged her fiercely, an affection that the younger woman returned, and though it was awkward with both of them still holding their weapons in their hands, it felt like the most true and heartfelt embrace she'd ever experienced. And then Mayara was there, and Lyke and the others crowding, touching Agala as though not convinced she was real. How? Mayara choked through tears, her small hands pressed against Agala's middle. They were all weeping, exhaustion and desperation, now given way to hope, strong, fervent belief that if Agala had been restored and transformed, that they might all be saved. The Night Lady, Agala told them, the Angel of Dusk. This is her shrine, and I begged help of her, and she graciously gave me what I asked. She might have said more, but a shadow crossed behind the fire, and she whirled, hissing at the other girls to stay back and hide. A rough clacking and flapping sound reached them, and a moment later an enormous vulture stalked around the fire. It was nearly as tall as Kite, and it regarded them briefly with one considering black eye. Then it dropped a single yellow dandelion to the floor and closed its massive talon around the face of one of the slain Kateran soldiers. Kite laughed, the sound full of relief. It is Gorkrow, she told Agala. Help has come. It was Agala's turn to stare disbelieving as the huge bird, half lurched, half flapped back out into the early light of day, dragging the corpse. She and Kite followed. The archway that led out of the shrine opened on a broad ledge. The only way to reach it was by a narrow path on the left-hand side that wound up in a graceful curve from the floor of the valley below. Taic Uljan and perhaps thirty more Katerans were below and a half-dozen were making their way carefully up that narrow path. They all seemed to freeze in disbelief as the giant bird dragged the corpse to the edge and then pitched it over with a mighty flex of its massive wings. A moment later, it settled next to Kite and changed, becoming not a vulture, but a big man, kneeling, dressed in an immaculate black and white uniform, his hair and beard were as black as pitch, his face the color of old, polished mahogany. The sigil of a silhouette of a diving bird of prey against a blood-red disc decorated his tabard, and he spoke in a deep and powerful voice. War leader, he was addressing Kite, I have found you at last. Gorkrow, Kite returned, beckoning him to rise. He did so, and took a sheathed sword from beneath his tabard and handed it to Kite. I have brought your blade, Lady Blood Moon. Kite took the sword with a wicked grin and drew it from its scabbard. It was heavier and longer than a Kateran weapon, and seemed to be exceedingly well made. 
The Katerans who'd been mounting the path retreated in some confusion, and the man called Gorkro watched them with an expression of deep malice that Agala could certainly sympathize with. You don't look or sound well, Kesselin, he rumbled, his voice low as he watched the Katerans confer below. Are you ill? Damaged, Kite returned. But that can wait. How close are the others? The man called Gorkro abruptly grinned down at them with a smile as wicked as Kite's. They're already here, he said quietly, waiting for me to deliver your terms. Kite shook her head, but whatever she was about to say was drowned out by the thunderous snarling and barking of dogs as Taek Olgen abruptly loosed his hounds. Gorkro moved in front of the women, striding to meet the beasts as they came tearing up the narrow, curving path. Agala made to draw her swords, but Kite stayed her hand with a gentle touch. There was a soft smile on her lips, and she nodded toward Gorkro. The first dog, an enormous gray monster, rushed at the big man's slavering jaws wide as he leapt onto his chest, and and licked Gorkro's face all over. The dog's whole body seemed to wag, and its snarls had become soft whimpers and whines, and the man returned its affection, rubbing its flanks, kissing its muzzle, nuzzling its head. Agala turned to Kite in shock, and the old woman laughed for a second time. Gorkro, Olrez Kobard as he is named, is an earth mage, Kite said different from the sort of magi your father was. Yes, my father told me of the earth mages, Agala nodded, though I had never met one until now. Nothing in nature, nothing of Rhett's fauna, save people anyway, will willingly attack an earth mage, Kite murmured. She was keeping one close eye on the unsettled Katerans below, but she added, somewhat unnecessarily, and they can speak to Rhett's creatures. The dogs settled, sitting or laying quietly in a semicircle around Gorkro. He turned back to them, his face hard. They are starving and mistreated, he reported to Kite. The Kateri have driven them to viciousness through lack of food and severe punishments. They are not vicious by nature. The dogs, I mean. Men make them that way. But these are calm now and will not trouble us further. He drew an expansive breath, an act Agala distinctly felt was an effort to calm himself. Shall I deliver your terms? Kite shook her head. Not mine, she nodded to Agala. Hers. He gave a peculiar sort of start almost as though he was only just noticing her and wondering where she had come from. He bowed politely. I am Ulrich Kobard, the Gorkrow, he offered. I am Agala Tael, she replied, and then she surprised herself by adding, I am the silence and the skeleton key, the champion of dusk. The words came out in her voice, but she hadn't really realized she was going to say them. Gorkrow didn't seem to notice. He nodded, accepting at value that these were her titles, and politely asked, What are your terms, champion? I have none to offer, 
Agala said after a moment's consideration. She looked up at him. They are murderers of innocence. They hanged my mother and the mothers of my companions. They murdered my father, the healer. They bound the midwife of my village and ate small, half-elven and half-spritten children to a stake, soaked them with water and left them to freeze to death. There is another young woman in the shrine here, dead of bites from those dogs that Olgen used to harry us, and these are just the crimes of which I have intimate knowledge. His face had grown even darker as she spoke, his countenance becoming something hard and terrible. He bowed, very formally this time, and turned to face the valley and the Katerans below. Take them! His words roared out like thunder. His voice seemed to carry with it the pressure of a great wind. Agala could only stare in amazement as the landscape all around the edges of the hidden vale rippled and changed. Rocks and shrubs abruptly became men and women, hard-eyed warriors dressed in dappled green and brown and russet and gray and armed with swords and bows and round shields all painted with that same device of a diving bird of prey on a blood-red disc. There must have been a hundred of them, and they swarmed over the Kateran soldiers. What little resistance they gave was swiftly quelled. It happened fast and almost silently, like a hawk dropping from the sky on a rabbit unaware. No, not a hawk, Agala realized. A kite. She turned to her companion. Kite was watching her, and she chuckled warmly at the expression on Agala's face. Your name, Agala started, he called you. When I was small, my mother called me Little Kite, Kite said, intercepting the question. But the name she gave me is Kesselin Duiratar, Kesselin Bloodmoon. When I became a war leader, I named my company after that pet name in honor of my mother's confidence in me. She gestured broadly to the soldiers below who had captured the Katerans. These are my hell kites. Agala drew in her breath and nodded. She supposed that there would be time later for a long talk. Now though, a pair of hell kites were dragging Taek Olgen up the slope. He'd been one of the few who had tried to resist, and it looked as though he'd had at least one of his legs broken for his trouble. The pair of Kite's soldiers dropped him unceremoniously to his face at the old woman's feet, and knelt, each of them keeping one knee on his back. War leader, the man on the left said. Harko, Kite answered. We have taken the Kateri as you commanded, Harko went on. I believe these may be the ones who sacked Janula, Klemeth, and Kylar. They are part of that force, yes, Kite agreed. She touched Agala lightly on the shoulder. This is Agala Tael, champion of the Angel of Dusk. She speaks for the fate of Olgen and the Kateri. The pair of soldiers bowed so low they nearly touched their faces to the ground. Harko forcing Taek Olgen to do the same with a mailed hand on the back of the other man's head. After a moment's genuflection, they rose and dragged the Kateran to his feet. 
Agala lowered her cowl and regarded him coolly. His eyes went wide in recognition, and he sneered defiantly. I take no sentence from a woman, and certainly not from some half-breed Kuja. Harko silenced him by kicking his bad leg out from under him and forcing him to his knees. If he speaks again, gag him, Gorkrow rumbled. Shall we hang him or put him to the sword? Harko was looking at Agala, and there was no judgment in his eyes. She considered his crimes, and for a long, long time she said nothing. She was fighting a war within herself. The rage and thirst for vengeance roared through her, heated her blood to near boiling. She wanted him to suffer, wanted to watch him suffer, wanted them all to suffer. Maybe I should burn them, or stake them out to freeze. Maybe I should kill him myself. That's my right, certainly. They all appealed to her in that moment. But the angel's voice rang in her head, the caution of losing herself in that rage, that thirst for vengeance. She was Nikik, that rare and strange child of a mage, born with no spark of power. She was an immortal, like an elf or sprite. But she was human-born, with a human heart, and human passions, and that power that elves and sprites didn't have. That power to choose between the darkness and the light. And her benefactor, the angel who had restored her, was exactly that being, that divine mixture of both darkness and light. Somehow, she knew that either way she chose, her decision would not be questioned, would not be interrupted. But in the end, it would be she who bore the responsibility and consequences of it. I am Agala Tael, she said at last. My father was the Yaradi Avius Domarim. You murdered him yourself when you feigned injury and asked for his help. My mother was Batala Tael, and you hanged her from your wall and forced me to watch. You murdered Amiana Yadaro, the midwife, and the wee little ones of our village. You are a baby killer and a coward, and you are wholly without honor. You will pay for your crimes with your life, now, today, because I will not see another scrap of bread or drop of water wasted on you. But unlike you, I am no monster. Your death will be swift and merciful." Olgen glared at her and spat at her feet. Harko was about to deliver another blow, but Agala held up a staying hand. "'Waste no more effort on this one,' she said to the Hellkite soldier. "'But feed whatever's left.' to his poor, starving dogs. The story spread from there, my friends. The Hellkite soldiers told the tale and told it again. And the story grew, as stories sometimes do. But I promise you this is the truth of Agalatael's tale, of her becoming the Champion of Dusk. This was, of course, another beginning and there were many more battles ahead of her, between the founding of the Order of Dusk and the day that she met Tasaqui Malinanx in his garden at midsummer. But those are other tales for other times.
Thank you for hearing this one and come back soon for another. The hearth is always warm, the ale is always cold, and old Orion Rawl, well, I am always here. Peace and good health, my friends. Until next time. This episode featured the voice talent of Brianna Cole as the Angel of Dusk. For your attention to this story, my friends, I thank you. Tales from the Crown and Lion is a fantasy storyteller podcast. Orion Rawl, the storyteller, is really just the author, Gabriel M. Cole, in a shabby disguise. This is a work of fiction, and all characters are the sole creation of the author. Any resemblance to persons living, or dead, or otherwise, is purely coincidental. If you enjoyed tonight's story, please let me know. The tech wizards have given us great ways to communicate, and we've recently tried to make it even easier for you to find your way to the Crown and Lion. For instance, you can drop a mage mail to storyteller at crownandlionpodcast.com, or you can send a brief whisper of a message to at Orion Rawl on Twitter. That's O-R-R-I-E-N-R-A-A-L. If you want quicker updates, or would like to comment on this or other episodes, consider following Crown and Lion Pod on Instagram, or joining our Tales from the Crown and Lion Facebook page. And consider giving us a rating on your favorite podcast app, or writing a review for the show on Apple Podcasts. Both are of immense value to me, almost as good as a gold coin in the hat. The musical intros and backgrounds are produced by Fezlian Studios and are used here under license. You can visit them at fezlianstudios.com. And if you'd still like more information about upcoming episodes, or to see how some of the more unfamiliar words or place names are spelled, feel free to visit The Crown and Lion yourself at www.crownandlionpodcast.com.